Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. Hey, everybody. The title of my message is... I'm just kidding. I don't know why I did that. That was really weird. I've never done that before. The title of my message today is, The old is gone, the new has come. The old is gone, the new has come. Why don't you come with me in your Bibles to Isaiah. We're going to be in two spots, Isaiah chapter 25 and John chapter 2. If you want to flip there in your Bible, it's good to bring a Bible to church, if you can remember. And, you, you know, normally they have the little ribbon thing, so you can go to Isaiah 25, put the ribbon there, and then jump over to John 2. I want to start by reading Isaiah 25. I want to give you a little context that the Old Testament of the Bible is a foreshadowing and is speaking to what's going to happen in the New Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is speaking to what's going to happen in the New Testament. And there's a lot of what the Bible and, and church people called prophecy, prophecies, okay? And it sounds like a big, fancy, mystical word. Don't get freaked out. It just means saying something today about tomorrow, okay? And it's meant to encourage. It's meant to, to, to foretell the future, saying something today about what's coming tomorrow. And the Old Testament is filled with prophecies about what life is going to be like in the New Testament age and the age to come. And so this is Isaiah chapter 25. This is the prophet Isaiah telling us what heaven and a, a fully realized relationship with God is going to be like, what it's going to be like when we are in his presence forevermore. You know, most people think we're just going to be up there sitting on a cloud, like, you know, playing with a harp for all eternity. I'm going to be honest, that sounds super boring. So I really hope it's not like that. That sounds awful. Good news is it's not, okay? The Bible says nothing about harp playing on clouds at all, okay? That's from like Tom and Jerry cartoons. What the Bible says about the eternal presence of God is really awesome. And I'm going to read you here in Isaiah 25 what it's going to be like. It's going to be on the screen behind me, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best carne asada y pollo asado, and the finest of wines on, that was the, the MIV, the Mexican International Version. Verse 7, on this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Oh, if that doesn't make you excited for the future, then I don't know what will. Like the, the Bible tells us that eternity is going to be like a giant awesome dinner party with the finest wines, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. That's what it's gonna be like. I love that out of every description that, that God could possibly give us for what eternal life looks like, he says it's gonna be like a giant feast, a giant dinner party. Who doesn't love a great dinner party, okay? Now, I know I'm not, I'm talking about a good one. I'm not talking about weird, awkward family dinners with your cousins you haven't talked to in 15 years and all that. I'm talking about like an awesome dinner party with the people that you love, the best in the world. Like, there's nothing like it. It's amazing. And I was, Katie and I were just kind of talking a little bit and I was like, I was like, what is it about, you know, what makes it so fun? Like, why are dinner parties so awesome? And I think Katie really, really nailed it when, when, 
she said, it's because it's a, a full sensory experience. You know, when you get together with your friends, like all five senses are engaged. Your sight, you know, you've got the ambiance and the market lights and it's dark and fire dancing. You've got the, the, the sound of people laughing and talking and wine glasses clinking and the smells and the tastes and all the senses, all the senses are engaged in an amazing dinner party. And isn't it beautiful that the Bible says in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I love that it doesn't just say, know that the Lord is good. It's not a cerebral understanding. It's a, a sensory experience that you taste and you see that the Lord is good. And I just, I mean, some of Katie and I's favorite memories are sitting around having dinner parties with our friends. A few months ago, we had some people over. It was George and Ruth Mendez and Sean and Grace Bennett and Christian and Lupita Franco and we were sitting in our backyard. We had the fire pit going. We had the market lights and great food and wine and it was awesome and Christian Franco was telling us this really sad story about some injury he had suffered while he was working and it was this long drawn out story and in the middle of it, Katie literally goes, Alexa, play sad violin music. And then it was just like, you know, while Christian's telling the story. And then we just started laughing at him because it was so funny with this music going and he's trying to get his, and we were, all of us, we were just rolling in laughter. He was laughing with us, okay, we weren't laughing at him. It was with, he was laughing with us. But I mean, the next day, like literally my abs were sore, my face hurt from smiling so much. Like the Bible tells us that's what life as a Christian is like. That's what life as a Christian is like. It's a feast, it's a banquet, it's fun. We got to go um, this year to, to Israel and on the way back we stopped in Italy for a few days and got to be in Rome with, with Pastors Jürgen and Leanne, Charles and Tessa Fuller, Pastor Stacy. I mean it was just, and sitting outside on the, on the streets of Rome having dinner, it's crazy. Like over there you have dinner at like 10.30 at night and people are just out with their kids, like they're two year olds. And I'm like what are you doing? The child should be in bed. But that's just what they do over there, it's crazy. And I just remember the sights and the sounds and the smells and some of the, the fondest memories I have are dinner parties with friends and the Bible says that's what the Christian life is like. So, it is no coincidence that when Jesus Christ of Nazareth busts on the scene, his very first miracle takes place at a feast. It's a wedding banquet where Jesus Christ starts his public ministry. Now, at this wedding, and, and you have to understand that in, in those days, a wedding was the groom's financial responsibility. And I don't know how we got off of that, and now somehow it's the responsibility of the father of the bride to fund all of this. And anybody that has daughters would love it if we could, yeah, you get it, you got several. It'd be great if we could just get the responsibility back on the grooms. That would be awesome. But back then, it, that's how it was. It was the responsibility of the groom to fund the wedding. And it would have been a huge social embarrassment for this wedding to not be well-funded, to not go well. And you need to understand that in those days, they operated in the, in, in the Eastern cultures in a honor-shame culture. And this would have, if, if a, a wedding was, was you know, underfunded and didn't go well, it would bring great, great, great shame to the groom and his family. 
And so Jesus shows up at this wedding, and this is where he decides he's going to launch his public ministry. And it's, it's kind of crazy to me. You know, like, how you start something is really important. Like, when Ron DeSantis started his campaign for president, it didn't go well. I don't know if you guys remember. He did this kind of Twitter thing, and, you know, he was going to make his announcement on Twitter, but then, like, the servers were just, like, melting from all the traffic, and it was like the audio was glitching, and it was starting and stopping, and then they were like, hey, you know, it's not working. Let's start over, and people were getting logged out of Twitter, and it just was a mess. And a lot of people have, have, have said that his campaign hasn't gone well because it didn't start well. And how you, like, how you start really, really matters. And so Jesus Christ, King of the universe, Messiah, here to save the world, is going to start his public ministry by keeping a party going. Like, no one's dead. No one's sick. He doesn't, like, you'd think, you know, hey, Jesus, you got to start with a bang, you know, let's, let's get some people back from the dead. I mean, that will, that'll show them, you know, write, write your name in lightning in the sky, Jesus, cha, 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 cha. But instead, he's at this wedding, and he turns water into wine. You know, it's like, it's awesome, but not like, you know, you'd think you'd want like, come on, let's, let's do the big stuff. Why? It's because Jesus was saying, the reason I'm here is to bring festival joy to the lives of people. That's my mission. My mission is to bring joy to be the fulfillment of what you've heard in Isaiah that says that when we're all with God in glory, it's gonna be a f the finest of banquets with aged wine and the finest meats. Jesus was saying, I came here because I am Lord of the feast. I am Lord of the banquet. So now I wanna actually read the story in John chapter two, and it'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bible. John chapter two. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, I think that's important, because what that means is Jesus was cool enough to get invited to weddings, okay? If you've gotten married, and you know when you're making your guest list, you're like, hey, should we invite, you know, da 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 No. So we know Jesus and his disciples were at least cool enough to be invited to the wedding. I think that's important. Verse three, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the, of the feast had, ta had tasted the water that was made into wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to the, bride, the bridegroom, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And I love this story because after the water's turned to wine and the master of the ceremonies tastes it, and he's like, oh my gosh, this stuff is great, he gives the groom all the credit. He goes to the groom and says, oh my gosh, you are amazing. 
everybody else brings out the good wine at first, and once everybody's, you know, a little, little tipsy-wipsy, then we bring out the, cheap, the, the cheaper stuff. You have saved the good stuff till the end. And I love it because that's God allowing this, this teenage groom to get the credit for God's power. And I just love just even the subtle generosity of God to, to, to save this young man from this public embarrassment. And so I've got three, three quick points out of this story. The time, the wine, and the sign. I know, I know. Yes, I did come up with that all on my own. Yes, I am very proud of my creativity. I feel very clever. The time, the wine, and the sign. Point number one, the time. I want to look back at verse 3, if we can put John 2, verse 3, up there. And I want to, um, well, I'll start just by reading it. And it says, and then, uh, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Okay, first of all, what's amazing to me is that Jesus called his mother woman. Now, you only get away with that if you're the king of the universe, okay? That's off limits for everybody else. Not allowed to do that. Early on in my marriage, I tried once. I was like, I was mostly joking, but I, you know, I was also kind of testing the waters a little bit, see what the boundaries are, see what the line is. I called Katie woman and that was the line. I found it. I found it right away. That's, can't do that. So he says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if you, if you read it on the surface, it's, it's easy to, to look at it and, and what, it, what it sounds like is happening is, you know, Jesus is there having a good time and just, you know, listening and everybody's dancing and singing and then Mary comes and says, hey, they're out of wine. And he's like, hey, you know, what, why are you dragging me into this? I'm not, I'm not ready to kind of start my, my ministry yet. And then she basically kind of eggs him on and then he does it. That's just not really like, Jesus doesn't do things like that. He doesn't get swayed by, by people and, and it, like he has a, everything he does is incredibly intentional. And so there's, there's something deeper going on in this, in this discourse, and everything in the Bible is there with intention. And so what Jesus says specifically is, my hour has not yet come. And in the, the book of John, and just to, um, you know, catch you up, the Bible's broken up into, into two halves. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. In the New Testament, the first four books of the Bible are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those are called the four gospels. And gospel is just a fancy church word that means good news. And so the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels. Again, I don't know why they put all these big, stupid, fancy words in front of stuff that just sound confusing. Synoptic is where we get the word synopsis. It just means a summary. So literally, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are, they're just called the summary gospels. And that's because they are eyewitness reportage about the life of Jesus. It's like eyewitness accounts. It's meant to be like, and like here's what happened. We, we saw it and we wrote it down. John is a little bit different. John is not meant to be a, a record, like, a, like a, a narration of here's exactly what happened. It's meant to give some of the actual theological implications behind some of the things that Jesus did and said and taught and all those things. And so there's, there's certain things in, in the book of John that we don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's not because you know, there's, there's incongruencies or inconsistencies between those books. It's because John had a different focus. And John was all about showing the, the theological 
significance. What does it mean, some of the things that God, that Jesus did and said? And in the book of John, everywhere you see the word our, H-O-U-R, our, it means something really specific. I'm gonna give you some examples. It's not gonna be on the screen, but just, just listen to me. So John 7.30, and then I'm gonna quiz you, and you're all gonna have to tell me what John means when he says the word our. And it should be, I think you'll get it. Therefore, they sought to take him. This is John 7, 30. Therefore, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, talking about Jesus, because his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. John 12, 27. Now my soul, this is Jesus speaking. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour hour. So when Jesus or, you know, through John uses the word hour, what's he talking about? His death. He's talking about his death. And there's no difference in this discourse in the wedding at Canaan. Now, if you go back now and in that context, it's actually really weird. So try to, let's all put ourselves at the wedding, okay? So Jesus at the wedding, everybody's having fun, dancing, dame mas gasolina, dame mas gasolina. Now that Daddy Yankee's a Christian, I'm the biggest Daddy Yankee fan in the world. I'm all in. I'm getting them streams up for him, trying to bless him. Come on, somebody. And so it's just, you know, music and dancing and fun and the wine's flowing. And then Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, we've ran out of wine. And then Jesus says, my time to die has not yet come. It's like, whoa. Uh, you know, this is a wedding. Just chill out. Why the... And I want you to to think about the last time you were at a wedding. I know for me it was, um, it was a handful of weeks ago, a beautiful couple named Brian and Sage Trainer. not sure if they're in here, but um, got to go to their beautiful wedding. And as I was, and it was, it was, you know, it was gorgeous, it was beautiful. And it just, you can't be at a wedding and not have fun. Like they're just so fun. And so we're, Katie and I are sitting together and, and it just brought me back to my wedding 13 years ago. And I just remembered what it was like to see my wife come out in her beautiful dress and just how taken I was and that we were young kids about to start this life together. Being at this wedding took me back to my wedding. And for people who maybe, maybe are, are still single, it'll, it'll make you start daydreaming and thinking about your wedding in the future, what it's gonna be like. And, and so Jesus is sitting at this wedding and in the same way, it took him someplace. It reminded him of something but it reminded him of the future that was coming. In order for him to be the groom and us to be the bride, the only path was through his suffering and his death on a cross that he knew was coming. And so sitting at this wedding, Jesus wasn't dame mas gasolina. He was somber and subdued because he, it was a reminder of the suffering that he was gonna have to endure in order to bring us into the feast of the kingdom. Point number one, the time. It was a little heavy, it gets better, okay? Just everybody, just hang in there. Point number two, the wine. It's better, the wine. Point number two, the wine. So I wanna go back to John 2, verse six, if we can put that up there. Now, it's, nothing is in the Bible by mistake. Every, every word is very intentional. It says, now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. By the way, as you know that I would, I did the math. And this is about 900 bottles of wine, okay? 
There's six of this, 180 gallons. There's six of these pots that are 30 gallons a piece. So Jesus literally snapped his fingers and 900 bottles of wine showed up, which just shows the abundant, lavish nature of God. And I love it because God didn't just rescue this teenage couple from the social embarrassment of not having enough wine for the party. He said, oh, I'm gonna give you wine for the party and enough wine for the rest of your life because that's the nature of the God that we serve. Verse seven, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them all the way to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, you know, da, 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 da. So it's no coincidence at all that, and the Bible's very clear to point out that this happens in these six stone water pots. And that's there very intentionally. And to understand that, we gotta kind of take a step back a little bit and look kind of, you know, 30,000 foot up holistically. So the God of the Bible is what the Bible calls holy. And holy, again, another fancy church word, all it means is set apart. It means that God is infinitely pure. He is infinitely unstained, unblemished in any way, nothing wrong with him, no defects, perfect. Now, I'm not, this analogy, I think, might work, so just hang with me, okay? Imagine a surgeon who's about to go into an incredibly risky, you know, high-risk procedure, and he's, you know, gonna, he has to get all geared up, right? And so before this is going to happen, he's going to go, he's going to wash his hands, and he's going to hand sanitizer all over, and then, you know, they're going to spray him with some kind of, you know, disinfectant something, then he's going to stand there and spin in a circle while they get him all, you know, de bacterialized or whatever, and he's going to stand there like this, and his assistants are going to come and put the gloves on his fingers, and he's just going to stand there like this, and get, they're going to put the smock on and the mask on his face and the thing on his hair, and then he's, he's pure and clean and able to perform this surgery, right? Now imagine Mike Yeager just walks in, what's up, surgeon, good to see you. I smack him on the back and give him a high five. He'd have to start all over. He'd be like, all right. Get the assistants back in here, start over. He'd have to do the whole thing all over again because I would have come in and depurified him. I would have uncleansed him, right, because of the germs and the viruses and the bacteria in me, right? Now, the only way that I could be in the presence of this surgeon is if I, before I went into his presence, did the whole thing and I washed my hands and, you know, hand sanitizer and got sprayed and then... You know, somebody put the gloves on me and then the mask and all the things and then I could walk in and then I could be in the presence of the surgeon without defiling him because I had been cleansed and cleaned up, right? Make sense? Yeah. Right? So God basically says, so God is the super clean surgeon guy in my analogy. Is this working so far? Okay. <sighs> Hope so. Um, and basically, the entire Old Testament is God saying, if you want to be in my, in my presence, here's all the things that you're going to have to do to get all cleaned up and purified. And that's what the entire Old Testament is. And it's, it's crazy. It's all these rituals and rites and things you got to do and then animals you got to kill if you did something wrong. And, and so God, God gives the people all these rules. And it involved actually a lot of bloodshed. It was really Think about it like church back then was nasty. Like, can you imagine if you walked into church and there's just a dead goat down there? You guys would be like, okay, well, I'm out. That was church back then. And people would, sh and, and then and here's what's, you know, and this is just what people do, is people were like, oh, awesome. So if I kill all these goats and stuff, then I can be out 
at the club on the weekend. And then they're like, sweet, all I got to do is kill a couple goats and then I'm good. And then there's a passage in Isaiah where God says, why do you think that I delight in the bloodshed of goats and bulls? Who told you to sacrifice all these animals? And everyone's like, you did. But God's like, you missed the point. The point was not to give you all this stuff to do so that you could just, you know, do it and go, go live your, your, you know, wild away from God's stuff. The point was to show you how disgusting and nasty the world can be. That's the whole point. The reason I'm having you kill all these goats is so you'd see all the nastiness that comes along with having to clean yourself up and fix yourself up. That's the point. They missed the point. So now here we find ourselves in the New Testament with Jesus Christ. And Jesus takes these six water pots that are instruments in all this mess. Part of the thing you got to do, you know, when you walk in, you got to wash your hands ceremonially and these special pots and do all these things. And all the Jews were so used to doing all this stuff. Oh, yeah, it's just part of it. Here's how we got to do it. If we want you know, to be clean and be in God's presence and da, 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 da. And that's the vessel that Jesus uses to turn the water into wine. And now the wine represents his blood. And it's Jesus saying that no longer will you wash yourself over and over and over and over again to be clean, but my blood will wash you once and for all. It'll be done forever. The old is gone and the new has come. And it's crazy because if you look at John chapters um, 2, 3, and 4, so just the beginning of John and we're not going to dive into it too deep, but the entire theme is old to new, old to new, old to new. So it starts with what we just read, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, which is the water into wine story, which is old purification laws being updated to something new, into the wine, into the blood of Jesus. And then immediately after that, Jesus goes into the temple and he sees all these people making money and, and the temple is turned into not a, a place of prayer and a place of, of, of godly reflection and worship. It's turned into this marketplace where people are capitalizing on people and they know people are going to need to come in and, and be, you know, sacrificing goats. So all the farmers are there with all their fresh goats. Like, hey, you know, I don't know what you did last weekend, but you need a goat for the sacrifice. And Jesus comes in and he's furious and he starts flipping tables over and cracking whips and says, you know, you're a, you're a den of thieves. This has become a place of robbers. My house is meant to be a house of prayer. So he gets in this big argument with everybody and, and it, the, the destruction of the temple comes up and Jesus says that in three days, if it's destroyed, I'll rebuild it. And they're like, how can, how can you say that? This temple took 49 years to build. Now, no one understood at the time he was talking about himself, that after he was destroyed, three days later, he would rise from the grave, rebuilt. And so again, you see the theme of old to new, old temple to the new temple of Jesus Christ. And then we get to John chapter three, which has the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, that comes out of a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, who's a religious leader, you know, just one of the, the super Pharisee guys. And, and Jesus says to him, truly, I tell you, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And this guy's like, what are you talking about? How can a man enter his mother's womb and be born again? How so it's old birth to new birth. And then in John chapter four, Jesus has an interaction with a woman at a well, and it's a very, very old well. It's Jacob's well. 
and she's drawing water out of it, and he says, Jesus says to her, this is old water. I can give you new living water. So the entire theme in the beginning of the book of John is from old to new, from old to new. And I don't know how you came in here today, but I want you to know that if you would receive it, there's a new life waiting for you, a new life. The Bible says that if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. Can somebody say amen? And if there, there is maybe no greater example in this church than me. I am literally a new creation. And, you know, so many of you just, just know Katie and I as Pastor Mike and Katie, and, you know, we, we have the honor of, of leading this campus. And, but that's not, you know, I wasn't born Pastor Mike. I was born just Mike. And I was just Mike for a really, really long time. I came to this church as just Mike. I came into this church a big mess with a, like no direction, I was lost, I was insecure, addicted to all kinds of garbage. I am a new, and my, the only person who would know the full measure of it besides God himself is my wife. My wife can attest to the fact that the man she's married to now, and I'm not saying this because I'm awesome. If you think I'm saying that, you're missing the point. The whole point is God, because I gave him my heart, has taken me from old to new. That's the story of the Christian faith, is old to new. Can somebody say amen? Oh, man, I got 5% battery on the iPad. Woo! It's like when your car's on empty and you're just driving it, just like, oh, this is crazy. This is crazy. How much further can I go? That's right. If it dies, we'll just, we'll just free flow. Point number three as we come to a close, I love it if the worship team could join me up on stage, the sign. So we had the time, the wine. In the sign. I'd love it if we could put John chapter 2, verse 11 back on the screen. And this is how John kind of wraps up this story. It says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And I love it. It says, It calls it a sign. It doesn't call it a miracle. It doesn't call it a, a wonder. It calls it a sign. Very, again, nothing is in the Bible by accident. A sign. A sign points to something else. You're actually not supposed to care about the sign. Like how weird would it be if I went up on the highway underneath the sign that says I-5 North and I was like, whoa. I-5 North. <sighs> That'd be crazy. There's nothing special about the sign. The only reason you care about the sign is where the sign takes you, the destination you're trying to get to. In the same way, the Bible says that this is a sign where Jesus revealed his glory. It wasn't about the water and the wine. It was about Jesus. Now, here's what's crazy to me. And I want you, again, everything in the Bible is there very intentionally. The Bible says that when the master of the feast tastes the water that was made wine, the Bible says, and he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. So the servants at this feast, they they saw it. They literally saw the water and then they dipped their ladle in there and pulled it up and it was wine. They saw the miracle. They saw the sign. But as John wraps up this story, it says, the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It doesn't say his disciples and the servants of the feast believed in him. 
It just says his disciples believed in him. And I, I re was reading a commentary and, and it just was said so beautifully, I'm just gonna quote it directly. It said, the servants saw the sign, but not the glory. The disciples by faith perceived Jesus's glory behind the sign and they put their faith in him. And what this tells me is that it's possible to see a sign from God, to see the power of God manifested, to see a miracle and miss the God of the miracle. I read a quote from um, Matthew Perry, who was one of the stars of the show Friends, passed away a few months ago. And um, it was just so, it was just, it was a heartbreaking quote for me to read of, from him. And it was in an interview and the quote says, it, he's basically talking about, there's only two moments in his life he ever prayed. And um, he's talking about the first one. He was a young man, 24 years old, and just struggling actor in Hollywood, just trying to make ends meet, you know, waiting tables and just trying to get going. And then he said on this radio interview, that prayer was, please God, make me famous. You can do anything you want to me, just make me famous. Three weeks later, I got the part for friends and God did not forget about the second part. And it's so sad to me because, you know, what he's alluding to is, is you know, you can do anything you want to me, just make me famous. And he says, God didn't forget about the second part. And he's essentially blaming God for his alcoholism, his drug addiction. Instead, like, so this young man prays a prayer, God, make me famous, and God does. And instead of recognizing that there's a God out there that hears me, that there's a God that has the power to, to, to make prayers come true, I, I, should, I should serve that God, I should worship that God, I should give my life to that God. Instead, Matthew Perry missed the God of the sign and just saw the sign. And how sad is it that he actually ended up blaming the God that answered his prayer with his struggles with addiction and not understanding that the God, if a God can answer your prayer and you pray to make me famous and three weeks later, he gives you the part of one of the biggest TV shows in the history of earth and to not understand that surely that same God can break the power of alcohol addiction, break the power of drug addiction over your life. How can you miss that? It's because it's possible to see the sign of God and not see the God of the sign. And I love that it, it says that the disciples believed in him, that they saw the sign, put their faith in him and believed in him. And to, to, it may sound a little abstract and okay, you know, what does it mean to put your faith in something? And I'll tell you what it means. The Bible says in Proverbs to, to trust in the Lord, to lean not on your own understanding. And that's, to me, that's the best way to like understand what faith in something is. It means to lean on it. I'm leaning on this pulpit and if it decides to give way, I'm gonna tumble. This is not leaning on the pulpit. This is what a lot of people do with God. They wanna be, they wanna be close to him, wanna have their hand on him because he does some pretty cool stuff, it's pretty powerful. Eternal damnation and hellfire sounds pretty terrible, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick right here. You know, I wanna be close, not gonna lean, I'm not gonna lean, I'm just gonna, but this is not putting your faith in him. To put your faith in him means to put your weight upon him so that if he chooses to not hold you up, you're gonna fall. 
That's what it means to put your faith in him, to trust in him. And I'm telling you, listen, Katie and I, we are in so over our heads. If he decides to remove his presence from my life, I'm done. And that may be unnerving for you to hear that from your pastor, but it's true, just so you know. Literally, we are, we are so, we are living on a prayer. We live our life leaning on God, stepping into the things he has for us, trusting that he can sustain us, he can hold us up, he's our provision, he's our source, he's the source of our encouragement, he's the one that we serve, he's the audience we care about impressing. That's what it means to put your faith in him. And so as we close, my question would be, have you put your faith in him? Have you literally taken your life and leaned it upon the promise of God? Or, or do you do this? Yeah, you know, I come to church and yeah, I attend a connect group. I read my Bible every now and again. Or have you leaned on him and said, everything I have is yours, everything. Every recess in my heart, every past trauma, every mistake, everything I'm ashamed of, I give it all to you. Maybe, Maybe you've been just trying to, to do the whole ritual washing thing and it's stuck in the, in the rat race of, of religion. And you know, just like the, the surgeon analogy, you try to every Sunday, you're like, oh man, I got so dirty this last week. Now I gotta clean myself up, wash between all my fingers and da 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 Thinking that God is somehow like, somehow you're fooling him by like, you know, like God doesn't know what you did on Saturday night, okay? Surprise, he's everywhere. He knows everything. And then we think like Sunday morning, just like, Lord, I give you my heart. He's everywhere, all the time, not fooling anybody. And I'll tell you what that life leads to. It leads to a life of exhaustion. One, here's what re religion produces, two things, self-righteousness and frustration. One of those, those are the only options. Either you're one of those crazy type A people who can actually like somehow do it, like you can actually pull yourself up by your bootstraps, look in the mirror and say your affirmations, I am awesome, I am successful, I am great, you know, I am da 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 da. And then you actually somehow, you know, you can conquer some of the giants. And what it produces in you is self-righteousness, where you look at people who are struggling and you're like, why don't you just figure it out? Just do some push-ups and quit crying. Nobody likes that person and they're very rare. All the rest of us, what it produces is just perpetual frustration, discouragement, because you, you try, you know, you try, I wanna be good, I wanna, and you pick whatever vice, whatever sin that's just owned you, and, and, and then it's like, you, you know what, I'm never gonna do that again, I'm never gonna do that again, I feel, feel so disgusting, I'm, I'm never gonna do it again, never gonna do it again. And then, you know, next week, next month, whatever it is, fall back into it, and just, oh my gosh. And it's just this constant, that's what religion does. Those are the only two options either a frustrated, beat down life or you're a self-righteous Pharisee that nobody wants to be around. Jesus did not come to bring the world more religion. He came to bring a new way to have a relationship with him. So I'd love it if we just bow our heads and close our eyes as we come to a close. And I wanna just give anybody in here an opportunity to do exactly what the disciples did after that, after that encounter at the wedding where it says, and they believed in him. They put their faith in him. I wanna give you an opportunity today to put your faith in him. 
And, and you know, you may, may be like, okay, that sounds great, but what, what, what do I, it's, it's simple. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so all we're gonna do is here in a second, if that's you and you know that's you, not yet, but here in a second, I'm gonna count to three and I want you to just shoot your hand up in the air and I'm gonna see your hand and I'm gonna include you in my closing prayer. And I'm gonna walk you through a very, very simple prayer that just confesses that Jesus is Lord and gives you the words to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says that you will be saved. And so maybe that's, maybe you're in here and you're like, oh my gosh, I've never, I've never even heard this before. I didn't, I didn't grow up in church. I've never even, this sounds awesome. I'm in. Or maybe you, you grew up in church, spent time, you know, like around God, around church, but, but you've fallen away, slipped away. Maybe you've, you've lived your whole life just kind of, you know, just kind of holding close to God, but not actually leaning on him and putting your trust in him. Maybe you're just in here today and you feel far from him and know that he's calling you back home today. If you're in any one of those categories of people, I want you to shoot your hand up and I'll include you in this closing prayer on the count of three. One, two three. Who needs to make that decision today? Wow, hands everywhere. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Anybody else in the room? There in the back, fifteen. I see your hand. In the back, awesome, sixteen. Anybody else need to make that decision today? A couple more minutes before we close. Once I've seen it, you can go ahead and put it down. You guys are awesome. Anybody else? There in the back, awesome, I see you. Anybody else? Ready to get right? Ready to give your life over to the only one who can actually give you life. Anybody else before we close? Amazing, amazing. Well, hey, can we all stand to our feet? Can we just give a big round of applause for everybody that raised their hand? There's so many of you, so proud of you. The Bible says that all of heaven is rejoicing when one comes home. So here's what we're gonna do. I wanna do what I said I was gonna do. I wanna, I wanna pray with you. I wanna pray with you personally and you know, it's not gonna work for me to get to all of you. And, and so I'm not doing this to embarrass you or, or anything like that. But here in a second, I'm actually gonna ask you, if you raise your hand, I'm gonna ask you to make your way out of your seat and come down here to the front. And I'm gonna get out of, off the stage and I wanna get down here. I'm gonna shake your hand and meet you. So if that was you, great. Listen, if you were standing next to somebody who raised their hand, could you offer to walk down here with them so they don't have to do it alone? But come on, if that was you, come on down. I'm gonna get down off the stage. I'm gonna meet you. The band's gonna sing. Everybody in here is gonna cheer and clap. So come on down, come on down. see you. Well, um, you know, maybe you rolled your eyes a little bit, like, oh my gosh, going to make me walk down to the front, come on. But um, I just want you to know that everybody standing be behind you is just pumped. And the reason we do this, and it's, it's not to embarrass you, it's not to, to, you know, make you a spectacle or anything like that. It's, it's actually, I heard somebody say one time that if you stay where you are, you run the risk of staying where you are. And there's just something about, you know what, like, 
The Bible says that, that if we're ashamed of him, then he's gonna be ashamed of us. And there's something about taking, taking a step down here and saying, you know what, like from this day forward, things are gonna be different. And I'm telling you, things are gonna be different in your life, young man, I'm telling you. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, I'm gonna walk you through a very, very simple prayer. And uh, you'll just repeat after me. But, but what we're gonna do is everybody in here is gonna pray this prayer alongside of you. Even, even people that, that have done this years and years ago, and that's so that you don't feel alone because the, the, one of the greatest things about having God as your father is that you get a bunch of amazing brothers and sisters too. So why don't we all bow our heads and come on, let's all pray this prayer loud and proud, everybody in the building. Let's all say, Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you today for sending Jesus on a rescue mission to save me. Today, I repent of my sins and I know that the blood of Jesus cleanses me of all unrighteousness. Today I declare you have a destiny for me. You have an assignment for me that heaven is my home. God is my father. I am his child in Jesus' mighty name. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.